Independent. Expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. Hello, everybody. My name is Joe Armstrong. Welcome to Independence Day. This is the show that examines the changing face of the music business and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers, and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances, and inside information, every bit of it without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. This week on Independence Day, Lee Pardini. A lot of kids dream of a career in music, and when they do, they often imagine themselves in the spotlight at center stage with thousands of eyes fixed on their every move. But there are many people making a living in music whose names are not on the marquee. In fact, for every Madonna, there are dozens of musicians who have played in her band over the years. If you want to work, learn and do everything you can. The diversification of skill sets is an essential way to get more gigs, especially given the luck factor involved in eking out a practical living in the arts. Lee Pardini is a top-notch multi-instrumentalist who has taken this ethos to heart. He studied jazz piano in college at New York's Manhattan School of Music, but he also picked up the bass along the way so he could play with a wider range of artists. And play he has. Pardini has backed up artists like Shelby Lynn, Jonathan Wilson, and Nick Waterhouse, along with just about everyone else in the pro circuit in the Los Angeles music community. What is it that Pardini brings to a band? Virtuosic chops for starters, but perhaps even more importantly, he brings an egalitarian perspective on music styles and an eager disposition. After all, no one wants to ride around in a bus all summer with a jerk. Along with making everyone else sound good, Pardini is also an accomplished songwriter whose piano compositions are nimble and inventive. So the next time you're at a show, pay attention to those players in the dim lights. They may be the next headliner ticket you buy. Welcome to Independence Day, Lee Pardini. Hey, Lee. Hey, Joe. How's it going, man? Oh, it's going great. I've been trying to get you into that chair in my studio for, I don't know, a couple years, I think. Yeah. You yeah. are a hard man to pin down. Yeah, it's been, you know, in the midst of a busy schedule. One of them good problems. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a good problem to have. High quality problem. Happy to be here now, though. And, uh, you know, part of the reason, well, probably one of the biggest reasons, you're just, you're ridiculously talented, first and foremost. Oh, thank you. You, know, you play numerous instruments and you're a good human being. We'll work on that smoking thing, but we've got some time. <laughs> um... A little ball busting to get started here. Uh, so one of the things I really want to talk about is, you know, your bread and butter in the music business is being a sideman, mm-hmm. which is a term, you know, everybody gets it in the business. You mm-hmm. know, that's someone who accompanies someone else on any given instrument or even vocals. And it can be a woman. You can be a side woman. But the phrase sideman, like so many sexist phrases, started right. out as sideman. Side person. Side person. The PC way. Side person, yeah, exactly. And the perfect example of that is today. You know, some of the songs you're going to be performing, you actually decided to bring a singer along. I did. Someone you work with, and let's say hello to Mia. Hello, Mia. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. This is Mia Dyson. Say hello to everyone, Mia. Hello, everyone. Very well. I love when people do that. I set that up all the time. Say hello, Mia, and I want them to go hello, Mia. (laughs) Like the '20s comedy thing. So they're very good. I approve of this thing. Points. So uh, yeah, exactly. Set point match. And uh, so it's great to have you two. Great to meet you two. You're an Australian uh, singer-songwriter, but you, you're based here. That's right. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And you've got like five albums. I have, yeah. Okay, so now back to Lee on this yeah. thing. Now that we've introduced everybody, yeah. we're going to hear some music from you in just a couple minutes here. Um, but, you know, Lee, you know, once we get into the interview a little bit, we'll talk a little bit more specifically about your perspective of being a sideman. Mm-hmm. Like, let's get Mia's perspective just right off the bat here, because, you know, where did you find Lee or where did Lee find you? And how did he become such an integral part of what it is that you do? Yeah, I was super lucky it, it, through no um, no credit can I take because um, my friend and drummer Aaron Sidney uh, and his pr- production partner Pat Couples, when we were working on uh, my record The Moment, um, our bass player fell through for the record and uh, 
I was really nervous about taking on a new player that I hadn't played with. And Pat and Sid were like, this guy is the shiz. You're going to have no problem. Like, you know, let's send him – we sent him some tracks and got him to um, lay some bass and, and organ on top um, and he sent it back to us. And without any guidance for uh, from us and he just, you know, killed it. Knocked it out of the park. And, yeah, and then we had this incredible experience in the studio – um, and everything was new for me because it was my first record in the States. It was my first record that wasn't self-produced. And uh, Lee just brought like everything to the table and yeah. you know, um, just had this incredible um, connection. And, and it's it's kind of just been that like that ever since. And in, in Idlewild, the next record, we just stepped it up again. You know, we, we, we spent more time like working on the songs together before we ran into the studio. Lee kind of, you know contributing to the songwriting and right. and um you know just playing everything and you know really bring in some some really interesting tones and stuff to the <laughs> the latest records yeah because so. it seems to me and lee i'd like to get your opinion on this mm-hmm. real quick and then we'll hear a song in just a second um you know there there seems like there are two kind of side persons out there right there's like the kenny aronoff type of side person who is john mellencamp's longtime drummer mm-hmm. and now he plays with just him he's always played with everybody under the sun the list of that guy's credits you could you couldn't fit it in a bible sized book how oh, many yeah. albums he's played on that's because he's he's more than just a drummer like he brings uh, a spirit to a recording and i've read numerous interviews about like this where Aaron Aronoff will show up and a song won't be gelling and and you know if they can give give Kenny you know give give the drummer some he'll jump in and be like okay we got to do this and this and this and boom 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 and everything locks into place and 10 minutes later they've got like the gold track mm-hmm. everything's everything's just kind of that way and I mean, it seems like you've got a little bit of this kind of musical Kavorka that you're kind of like become the glue that holds thing to get things together because the side person, a lot of times, in contrast, the other type of side person is the, the person who just kind of shows up and sings. And it's not that they're bad, you know, but they're, they're there to do a specific role. They mm-hmm. sing the third background part in Lyle Lovett's band and they're an incredible musician and that's just what it is. But, I mean, it seems to me you're kind of a chameleon though. You can kind of do either one. Yeah, uh, you know, definitely I think sort of thrive on being fairly versatile. Um, and I, I think in my experience, I've, I've found a good balance of those two things, you know, where it kind of depends on the situation, but you sort of get in there and you don't want to just immediately come in right. and just asserting your opinion on what should be happening, right. you know, with the track. So I think I've sort of gotten a good sense of sort of when to sort of s- sit back and just observe for a little while and see how the dynamic is shaping right. up. And then if it, you know, if it's not happening, you know, just finding that right time to just sort of like, okay, well, how about we just try this, right. you know, and sort of, I kind of sit there and make sure, you know, I have the idea fully formed in my head before right. I'm sort of throwing it out there. Right. But, you know, just kind of, kind of reading it, each situation differently Right. And kind of reacting sort of appropriately to the situation, you know. Right. And as an exur- as an accompanist player, mm-hmm. you know, part of what you're doing, you know, you're supporting that other artist and making them look good, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word. Right. You know, it's like the whole standing in the shadows of Motown thing or the, the 50 feet from stardom thing or 20 feet from stardom, whatever that number mm-hmm. is. Or the that, wrecking crew. Or the wrecking crew. Yeah. Any of these musicians. I mean, these people are people who you've heard on countless records who've made these records. I mean, the key guitar parts for My Girl the key drum parts, all the James Jamerson bass lines, like that's what yeah. made that stuff happen. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess it could just as easily have been someone else, but it wouldn't have been what it was, and what it was was amazing. Yeah. 
So, you know, having that ability, you know, for you, yeah. I mean, you, you've got the musical Kavorka, I think, is what it is. Yeah, and, you know, and it's also, like, without having to say anything in, this, in, the, in a session or a certain musical environment, like, just finding that balance of what you're saying on your instrument that's right. not overstepping your bounds, but still making your own personal statement and, right. like, that perfect thing that, you know, is supportive because that's your main job right you know is playing the song and being as supportive as you possibly can but you know i think you know my goal is also and i think a lot of other people's is too but to, to at the same time make a very personal statement right. where it's like you hear that bass line and it's like it it fits the song perfectly in some sort of overarching umbrella of the style and everything but they sort of hear it and they can hear your right. personality like when you know if people know me they can hear like a keyboard thing. They're like, oh, that's, you know. Yeah. That's so you. Totally. You know. Funny little short aside. I've, I've always been a big fan of the drummer Matt Chamberlain. Oh, yeah. He oh, first God. made Amazing. first made waves with Edie Brickell and New Bohemians. Uh, okay. Second album. He, mm-hmm. And it was a great album. That was a very big album in my college days. Mm-hmm. And then he played with Pearl Jam for a while. He mm-hmm. played with Tori Amos. And now like R and off. He's a session guy. He's played with everybody under the sun. Yep. But I'd been a big fan of his and listened to a lot of that Edie Brickell record. So I knew his style really, really well. Several years later, I was watching Saturday Night Live, of all things, and in one of the breaks before a commercial, I heard the band playing, and I was like, good God, that drummer sounds like Matt Chamberlain. Could it be? Because this was kind of pre-internet. You couldn't just go look up on the internet and see what his credits were. Yeah. Right? And so I actually, even though the lame, everyone knows that the end of Saturday Night Live is lame every time. The last couple skits are lame, right? So I sat through every single thing because I knew they would list the band, and sure enough, it was Matt Chamberlain out of nowhere. He did one year mm-hmm. in that band. And I was like, ah, I've got it, which is even harder for a drummer, I think, because you've got, you don't have musical phrases. It's just rhythm and placement of notes. Yeah, yeah. Before, behind the beat. So that's, for me, that's my biggest example. And tone, too. And tone. Because he's got a very... How he tunes his drums. Yeah, his snare drum and, you know, all those things combined. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Anyway, that's a, that's a short aside, but that's, what I, that's, that's my little story about mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So uh, let's hear a song here. Since, Lee, since uh, Mia's along for these uh, for several songs we're going to be playing, the first song we decided to play from you... Uh, is a track from her most recent record, Idlewild, which is the title track of that record. Uh, Mia, real quick before we play it, tell us and our listeners, what what did Lee bring to this song and this album? A whole ton of things <laughs> he brought to this, this song and this album. I sense that you're omitting a swear word in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I really was like, where am I going to go with this? Um, yeah, this was it was super fun making this record because we already had that trust established. And the thing about Lee that I wanted to add, like he's serving the song, which I think is you know a crucial... Uh, Rule number one. Yeah, mm-hmm. as, as a side person or any person contributing to a song is like, let's not make it about, you know, showing off or, you know, make it about me, but like make it about the song and, and Lee, but still manages to bring this great personality and and, uh, and serves the song. So, um, uh, you know, this record, we really experimented a lot more. And, and so, you know, Lee was just throwing out like, why don't we try running this um, organ through the, or this um, whirly through the organ Leslie and then through a delay pedal. And, you know, we just, we just messed, same with the guitars, but we really messed with, with sounds and Lee brought like a lot of really interesting ideas and, and kind of little sort of takes, off takes on, on sort of classic sounds that you would, you know, recognize. Mm-hmm. And on this particular right. song, like you played the Glockenspiel, but it's through, we kind of affected it in this crazy oh, yeah. way. And uh, I think, yeah, Space Echo yeah. on the Glockenspiel. We ran the B3 through 
uh, a toaster. Yeah, a toaster. <laughs> yeah, and then through the microwave. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, just just experimenting. But it's a tube toaster, so it's yeah. got that vintage tube vintage, toaster yeah. sound. Fifties tube toaster. Um, yeah, and you know what I really like about this song too is like, it's just got such a fun vibe to it. Yeah. Which I think, you know, I th- if if anyone could say one thing. Like, I really just want to have fun, you know? <laughs> you <laughs> just, and Cindy Lauper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just in the studio. Like, and it's, it's you know, it, it can't be like this every time. But working with Mia, since we've developed such a, um, you know, comfortable working relationship. Right. Like, especially on Idlewild, the second album that, that we did together. You know, it was just so comfortable and relaxed. And, like, there were no bad ideas. I mean, there there were, you know, but, like... <laughs> At the start, you know, you just feel comfortable to throw anything out. And that's like what I think you can hear is us just kind of having a blast in the studio and and it all coming together, you know, using, you know, our best musical judgment of what works and what doesn't work. But right. Something that comes to mind is like the musical language, which Mm -hmm. is like there's our, you know, there's our nonverbal language and nonverbal cues, our verbal language that we speak. And sometimes that can be a different language between players. And people always talk about music transcending human speech language. But I almost feel like music is almost like a sixth order or 10th order language Mm -hmm. because I've had musical connections with people that, uh, you know, we're very, very disparate in our opinions about other things in the world. And uh, we come from different parts of the world and different attitudes about everything. But we speak a language that is several orders beyond what we can possibly express. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. you can't even exactly put a finger on what makes these two people or these five people gel, musically speaking. Like, mm-hmm. look at the Stones or the Who or Pearl Jam or whatever. Bands right. that bands that have this thing together. Or U2, I think, is probably the best example, mm-hmm. where the whole is so much greater than the sum of that those parts. Yeah, definitely. And that's that musical language, I think, here. So anyway, absolutely, I'm talking too much. So anyway, so I've got uh, Lee Pardini as our guest this weekend, Independence Day. He's got Mia Dyson along with him to sing a handful of songs. We're going to hear a song from her most recent record. This is Idlewild, the title track from her most recent record, Lee Pardini with Mia Dyson riding shotgun on Independence Day.
that is Lee Pardini accompanying Mia Dyson on a number of instruments. That's a song by Mia Dyson that you will find on her not most recent record, but a record that preceded that called The Moment from 2012. She's got five records. You should check her out. And you can check her out at MiaDyson.com. M-I-A-D-Y-S-O-N. Australian artist. I love She could just talk. Yes. You know? Like yeah. It's something about American dudes and like hearing girls with other accents. She can oh, just she's talk got all day. Fantastic accent. Yeah. Just, 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 just give her like... Give her the phone book or something, or give her a menu. Just read the menu, baby. Right. <laughs> yeah. Anything you want. Exactly. Anyway, so yeah, so Lee, uh, Lee, you're my guest this week, Lee Pardini. Yes. Uh, you are originally from the San Jose area. Yep, San right? Jose, California. And, but then you did some time in New York as well. Your college career, you actually went to a music school. I did, yeah, the Manhattan School of Music. And that's a bold choice because a lot of musicians, you know, they, they opt to kind of skip that. Why for you? Why was that important to go to school? Well, you know, to be honest, I didn't didn't give it a whole heck of a lot of thought. You know, I knew I wanted to do music long term, and I had studied enough jazz in high school, although once I got to college studying jazz, I quickly realized how green to it I was. But I knew I knew that a jazz background would kind of give me the skills right. to do a lot of other things. And you know, I had really no interest in anything else other than music. So it kind of made sense that, you know, at that point, if I was going to do it, I was going to go all in, you know, and go to a school like Manhattan School of Music. That's a, it's a yeah. conservatory. I mean, that's basically all you're doing. Yeah. And and then you know, kind of use the jazz degree as it as it is like as a jumping off point for everything else. Right. So you were you weren't studying classical and jazz. It was just just jazz. Just jazz. Okay. In in some private instruction, um, I did a little bit of classical stuff, but it was mostly to get certain things together to kind of enable my jazz playing. Like it wasn't yeah. super serious, uh, and I wasn't performing it in front of people. It was very just like low key in front of the teacher, which still had a lot of pressure attached to it. But like right. I wasn't giving you know, recitals on classical music or anything. Right. And then your experience in school, you know, you did jazz piano, mm-hmm. not just jazz studies or not jazz organ and piano or jazz whatever. You were pretty much focused on piano. Yes. It's okay. very specific at the school. Okay. And then piano was your first instrument, I take it, growing mm-hmm. up. And who yep. got you, like, as a kid? Like, was it you who went to your parents and said, hey, mom or and or dad? It was. It was, actually. And, you know... I wish I knew where this kid was now. Like, I think, so I must have been in third grade. So this could have been in second grade that I first started becoming interested. And then by the time I was in third grade, I'd gone to my parents and asked for lessons. But this guy, Greg, that I was really close with that one year of school was taking piano lessons. Um, And my older brother had like this just little Casio keyboard around the house. And Greg would sit down and, and he was really good at a young age. And, you know... I didn't know what was going on, really, but it just, I just knew it, there was something about it that I was, like, drawn to. I kept, it was probably horrible for him hanging out with me, because I was, like, he wanted to go play basketball or something. I was like, no, play that again. Play it again. <laughs> I made him do it over and over and over. Yeah. And finally, after the end of that school year, he moved, I think he moved to North Carolina. And so we lost touch. I haven't okay. seen him since. I wonder if he's still playing. I really, I wonder. I hope so. Yeah, if he's out there. Little do we know he's like changed his name and he like is Lady Gaga or he's, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, or he's like, you know, Justin Timberlake's ND. Yeah. Like he's just got this yeah. 
amazing gig, you know, for a side man or something. Yeah, but yeah. he got me into it, and then my parents were okay, really cool, and, and they were receptive to this. Like they've supported you pretty much all the way through, because that can be a scary prospect for parents. Here's a here's a key question: mm-hmm. Were your parents musical? Uh, not technically, not on any instrument. Um, music fans, music fans, they had great taste. Okay. So when I was growing up, you know, all the great records, you know, from the '60s. And the 70s, like we had in the house, like they had good taste in music. Here's a question. I've always wanted to ask somebody this. What is your earliest musical memory? Like the first album you can possibly, or first song, or first, you know, when your brain associated that with music that you understood what music was. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I I know what mine was, but go on. What's your... Uh, Okay, so the first like song that I think that yeah, I remember anything. way back it was back as far as far as you can go the, the first one that I remember just being able to hum the melody and just everything about it catching my ear was please please me okay by the Beatles something about that track when I was probably one of the first songs I ever heard because it was playing in my house all the time you know so that's one of my earliest musical sort of memories just as a kid before I started buying my own stuff which yeah. ended up being like Weird Al and stuff at a certain yeah, age yeah, of you course. know but first live show that I went to that I remember vividly, which I carry with me just in musical taste and and stuff to this day, was Kenny Loggins. Oh, my Lord. And with Tower Power opening. Okay. And I tell people this because I think it's hilarious because it's kind of a funny bill. And, you know, think what you want about Kenny Loggins. Like, I love that guy. And that stayed with me in Tower of Power, you know, the pride of the East Bay up there. Um, does my first live show that i remember and then the beatles you know please please me yeah as a as a recording as a kid it's funny how those things get into your psyche Mm -hmm. when you're like so young you know for me that first earliest memory was dark side of the moon oh yeah because my dad was a big pink floyd fan uh like my dad was the rock side my mom was more the pop but pop was different back then from my dad was the stones guy my mom was the beatles girl Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right so like it's kind of the best of both worlds in a way but like for a little kid like a young young child clocks and heartbeats and voices and money were things that could you could relate to yeah like uh, not just musically it was these sound effects mixed in so that's that that's that's there in my earliest memories of all. But even also kind of terrifying on that record. Yeah. Like there's that sort of maniacal laughter going yeah. through one of the tracks, you know. Maybe and, that's why I'm such a big Tom Waits fan. Yeah, now. yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> all that crazy stuff. No, you're right. It has just stayed with me. You know, I don't necessarily listen to all that stuff every day, but yeah. but it's definitely informed a lot of my yeah. musical perspective. Well, the, you know what, man? And it's it's a good place to start. I mean, for God's sakes, if you're going to start with the Beatles, you, you could do worse than to start with the Beatles. Yeah, you know what I'm exactly. saying. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I there's some people who've got some pretty embarrassing places where they started. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, and so among you know being a, a side man, you mm-hmm. you've performed with you know aside from Mia, you know you work with Nick Waterhouse, mm-hmm. uh, Jonathan Wilson, Brian mm-hmm. Whelan, yep. other folks around town. Um, you're a composer as well. Mm-hmm. So what I want to do, I want you to play one of your songs. This is one of the songs that you, this is going to be like a solo piano thing. Yes, I think. So well, tell me what this one's called. Okay, this one's called Makara. Okay, um, and it's it's a bit of an older tune uh, that I wrote, but it's it, the thing that I love about jazz and especially the stuff that I write. Like I'm, I may get tired of it in its original form, but it's just always kind of taking new shapes. It's malleable. That's the yeah. Thing um, about jazz. It can be whatever I want it to be. I mean, it's. And it's since it's lyricless and it's just instrumental, it it can very easily change meaning. Yeah. As well. Okay. Um, 
So yeah, this one's called Makara. I wrote it a while back, but it's definitely something that, you know, I still play and especially sort of got kind of this new group that I'm working with and, you know, they like playing it. So it'll be in our sort of live music, you know, our live repertoire as it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's uh, like a lot of, not that I'm saying this song is great by any means, but, you know, it's, it's named after a, a girl as a lot of great as songs often songs are. are. Yeah, so, you know, can't go wrong with that. Yeah. All right, man. So when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about music versatility. We talked about that in the intro and mm-hmm. uh, with me a little bit. Uh, but first, let's hear this. This is one of Lee Pardini's original compositions on solo piano. This is Makara, Lee Pardini on Independence Day. Thank you. 
My name is Joe Armstrong. Welcome to Independence Day. We come to you just about every, these days we're doing about every other week, but sometimes every week. You can visit us at indepday.com, I-N-D-E-P-D-A-Y.com. Please follow me on Twitter at indepday. Lee Pardini, you can't find on the internet. You have to put up the Lee Pardini bat signal. Trying to stay off the grid. Which is the staying off the grid, which is the, I think it's the shape of a shorn ponytail. We've decided. (laughs) Just a light. You put it up in the sky and he will come and play on your gig and you, you give him money and he does great work for you. So excellent work, man. That's a really, really, really good composition thank you uh you know to me it's it kind of rides that line between you know blues and jazz Mm -hmm. uh you know and and it's it's always interesting to me we talked about this before a little bit while we were setting up how expressive different instruments are in different ways Mm -hmm. the hammond organ so expressive because you can modify so many different things about it while you're playing piano you're locked into those 88 notes Mm -hmm. boom those are locked you can't bend them there's no vibrato right you know, you've got your touch, your attack, your release, and your sustain pedal, and that's about it. But yet, it's so expressive. It is. It so. can be, yeah, it, it's expressive in its own, you know, special way, and a lot of it can come from, you know, it's not, you know, with an organ, you have volume swells, yeah. tonal shifts with the draw bars and stuff like that. With piano, it's more kind of or- orchestral yeah. or arrangement-based, so you're talking about, like, the density of the chords, you know how how thick the voicing is. Right, how close how, together the voicings before yeah, spraying and that, them out. Yeah, and that and that kind of conjures up certain emotions. If it's, you know, and then the sustain pedal, obviously, you can have it be real dry or washy or whatever it is. But that's what I love about piano because it's it's pretty clear across the board in terms of you can have a pretty dense voicing and it gets muddy on organs and right. and Rhodes instruments and stuff like that. With piano, it's you get a more freer to experiment with eight notes in a chord or, right. or 10 as many as many as your fingers can play which yeah. i mean could probably be 12 if you really try your head and your face involved <laughs> yeah, in yeah, exactly. you're like jerry your lee foot. lewis get your foot on there man yeah, do what yeah. you got to do <laughs> um so one thing i want to talk about musical versatility but first i want to talk one this is a funny little side thing again this is something i've always wanted to ask somebody because mm-hmm. i don't get a lot of instrumentals on the show just mm-hmm. a handful over the years um you said this one's named after a girl, mm-hmm. but like the naming of instrumentals, you know, other if it's not a girl, what's it going to be? Like, how do you decide? Uh, yeah, I am. I, I could be the worst at titling instrumental um, compositions and tunes, you know, and I've always found it's easier and probably serves the tune better if you you know, you kind of want to have a vision of what you're kind of writing about. I mean, it's right. got to have some depth to it, even if it's instrumental. And so you kind of have a that vision already, which makes it easier to title, you know? Right. Like you're just you're thinking about a certain place or a certain person, um, right. you know... But there are some silly names out there for yeah. instrumental tunes, you know, if it's... Yeah, you get all Primus on everybody. Yeah, yeah, it's either that or it's like blues for somebody or right. blues about something if it's a blues tune. Or, you know, I do like that, you know, I think as jazz musicians, like, kind of have like a pretty, you know, nerdy sense of humor. So, you know, no one takes too much stock into the right. names of the tunes well but see there I, I i feel that there are there's kind of two ways to go about naming an instrumental mm-hmm. um especially in the jazz field there's the kind where the phrase even if it doesn't actually have a whole melody and lyrics like there are some songs that are just instrumental mm-hmm. so you can sing that line and it would fit over that melody mm-hmm. it makes sense rhythmically harmonically harmonic rhythm you know uh 
you know, say Makara could be a song you can, you know, three syllables, the melody could be Makara. Yeah, yeah. Or Makara, and that rhythm, right? Mm-hmm. But then there's other kinds. It's just the name of the song, man. Yeah. You it's know? just something to put on paper. Yeah, because so, it has to have a name. Yeah, and you know, I've toyed with, you know, in years past, like, because I've always, I've always struggled with it. I'm, my approach has changed in the past few years, so it's, it's easier for me now because I think I'm getting more in touch with what I'm actually writing instead of like, you know, when I was in school, it's more assignment based. Right. So there was a time where it's just like, well, if I can't think of a name, let's just call it tune number two. Right, right. Or and song can, one. And you I can mean, only get away with like untitled, like once in your career. Totally. Like you can have one song that's untitled yeah, and that's yeah, fine. You exactly. call it untitled and okay, you're clever. We get it. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. But you can't do that with everything because then you're too clever and then it's not clever well, and when anymore. It's, and when it's done in like a more catalog fashion like that, sometimes it, it, it makes me think that that it's it's void of of that substance that like right. might not be obvious to the listener because there's no words guiding you through it. But like, yeah. I like it when you sort of have a pretty simple title and it just doesn't tell you what the song is about, but it kind of puts you in a place, yeah. you know, and at least kind of gets you thinking about it. And then it's kind of up to everybody else to decide right. what it means to them. But Because there's inherent built in, forgive my redundancy, ambiguity. In an instrumental, definitely. What's it about? Because there's no, there's no lyrics. So what are what are they playing about? What are yeah, they? Yeah. What are they? What what are they? What's this about? Right. right. So leaving amb- ambiguity is a good thing mm-hmm. for the listener. You can let people you know fill the populate that with their own imaginations, which is a good thing. puts It brings them into what you're doing. Definitely. Um, but there's got to be some kind of theme. Anyway. Well, I wrote one, and you know, to wrap that point up, I I wrote one a long time ago, which I still like, but it has the silliest title ever. It's called like Robotronomatic Twenty Two Twenty Two. And it's, you know, I mean, you could imagine it's got sort of a, you know, robotic sort of beat yeah, to it. Yeah. It's kind of groovy, but it's just such a silly title, you know? Yeah, yeah mine, I, I don't do a lot of instrumentals, but mine was, uh, my craziest title was Copulus Megoptera Novangliae, <laughs> which was Latin for, you know, and, and I'm, I'm forcing the idea upon the, forcing the phrase upon the idea, but I'd seen some show about how sperm whales mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look it up on the internet sometime. Okay, I will. It's, it's pretty... Uh, <laughs> It's pretty interesting how they they go about it. So I I had to write an instrumental for a class, and it was like I I was so amused by this this process that I looked up Megoptera novangliae. I'm I'm mutilating the Latin, but that's the Latin term for that whale, and then copulus, which is just my forced Latin of copulate. So yeah, 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 it was just my ode to that particular thing that amused me at the time. (laughs) Any case, let's get off that topic as fast as we can because that was lame. Um, Let's talk about musical versatility. Yep. Right, because you know you're a pianist, uh, you sing background mm-hmm. vocals, which is like that alone for like a, a band leader. You know, as you as a side person, mm-hmm. uh, that's very valuable. Uh, but you also play bass, and you tinker. You've got you know you tinker with Hammond organ. You're getting more into that. Like, yep. What does this versatility mean to you beyond just being able to play different instruments? Yeah. Well. You know, I mean, it goes back, I think, to the earliest days of me listening to music. Like, I've I've always had a pretty broad palette in terms of what I'm into and what I like. And, you know, through all sorts of musical training and, and gigs and stuff, like, I've only been happiest when I've had that variety, it feels like. And so I've developed the skills and still am trying to, you know, right. I mean, it's always a work in progress, but like... To, to be versatile so I can just stay satisfied in, in being able to do different types of gigs and feel comfortable doing it. So for me, you know, I think 
being being versatile as, as a musician is is just necessary to just maintaining like happiness in my career. Yeah, okay. Um, and not that I wouldn't like to find one gig that was like that one gig that it, I wouldn't need any other gigs necessarily, but I get bored pretty easily, pretty restless, you know, and I thrive on that variety just to keep my mind yeah. sharp and, and stay interested in things. Well, you, you know? mentioned the word comfortable in there, mm-hmm. and I think there's some value to being uncomfortable on an instrument. Oh, absolutely. Which I, I you know, I love to do that. Like, I pl- I've got every instrument I can find in this apartment, mm-hmm. and, yep. and, you know, we'll acquire more over the years, I'm sure, but... Like, I like not knowing what I'm doing. I mean, I know enough about music to kind of have an idea, otherwise I wouldn't try. But yeah. but I find pleasure in the mistakes or pleasure in the dissonance or pleasure mm-hmm. in the not knowing what I'm doing. And that's where the fun stuff comes from. Definitely. It's like, you know, I've been, I'm not the best guitar player in the world, but I've been playing guitar 20-some, five, I don't know how many years now, mm-hmm. maybe more, 30. I don't even have any idea. I can, can even count it up. Um <laughs> But, and that's fun, but like Tom Waits says, you know, your hands are like old dogs. They'll just go down the same paths over and over and over again. They'll go to the same places and do the same things and drink from the same water holes mm-hmm. and eat the same food. If you get on a different instrument, all bets are off. You're just, yeah. you're freewheeling it at that point. Definitely. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's such a Tom, Tom Waits sort of thing, kind of, in addition to putting, you know, your, your hands on a, just a brand new instrument and seeing what comes out. I mean, that's that's more of a sort of a direct line to your sort of musical soul than being on an instrument that you've studied yeah. forever because, you know, you get all this technical training and it's can be very precise. But when you're on a foreign instrument yeah. that you don't play very well or have never played before, you know, you have to just use your instinct and your ears to kind of find out what you can do that sounds good on that instrument without having practiced it a bunch. And it's... It seems to be more truth in that. Yeah, well, it's like Al Cooper uh, played on, uh, I think it's like a Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. He wasn't a Hammond player. And, and, and d- Dylan's like, you're going to play that. Yeah. And, and he's like, so what are you talking about? And yeah. like, he, he faked his way into that whole kind of thing. Yeah, or yeah. there's that, uh, who is it from Harvest, that Neil Young record? Someone wasn't playing their main instrument. They hadn't played it before. And Neil's like, no, you're going to play that. Oh, yeah, I don't was even it know. Ben Ke- was it Spooner Oldham or Ben Keith? I don't remember one of those guys. In any case, we're yeah. getting off topic. Right. Anyway. <laughs> Let's hear another song, because I want to sure. make sure we get all these in here. Uh, this is going to be another song with Mia. Uh, tell me a little bit about this one, Lee. Uh, this one is called When the Moment Comes. Uh, this is the first record that I did with Mia back in 2012. Oh, um, way back in 2012. Yeah, back in the day. It was right after I moved to L.A., and it was actually... Couldn't have asked for a better... Uh, situation to to sort of walk into, or at least as soon as I moved down here, we basically went and rehearsed and then started working on the record. So it was a very nice welcoming into uh, Los Angeles. But this tune is the, uh, you know, it was the single off of the record um, and probably the first one that we even tracked with her. So it was very, okay. very much my introduction into working with her and, and working in the studio with her. All right, so once again, Lee Pardini with Mia Dyson here on Independence Day. Don't look back 
accompanying Mia Dyson once again here on Independence Day. You can drop by Mia's website, miadyson.com, but we're talking with Lee Pardini. He's our main guy here, which brings Mm -hmm. me to my next logical questions for you, which is we touched upon this in the very, very beginning, this idea of being a sideman, because I think you might be the smartest guy I know musically in Los Angeles, because heretofore, as far as I know it, you don't, I mean, maybe you do solo jazz gigs or you do gigs under your own name as far as that's concerned, but you are almost exclusively an accompanist in some factor or another, Yeah. whether it's bass or keyboards or some combination of the two. Yep. And that's how you get work. Mm-hmm. You know, like everybody, you know, our, our common friend, excellent musician, Brian Whelan, you know, he's done a lot of that too, but he now is, he's jumped out of the nest, you know, in some ways you feel like you're on fire. When you jump out of the nest, you're yeah, not just yeah. jumping out of the nest. You're also on fire, and there's piranhas below you. Right. You yeah, know? yeah. So, uh, you know, is this is this a conscious thing? Because you are a composer, you are a singer. Mm-hmm. Is this a conscious thing to kind of build up your rolodex full of these people you're playing with, or is this just what you like to do? You know, it's it's yeah. I don't. I wouldn't say it's very conscious at all. I think it's uh, it's it's just something that kind of has happened over the past few years. 
you know, since I moved down to LA, it, it's not that I, I wouldn't like to be doing more gigs under my own name, but but I do love working, you know, collaboratively with other people and even just sitting sitting in the back and playing some bass. Like yeah. I don't need to have so much input in what's going on. You know, it's just I really like playing, you know, like I was saying earlier, like all styles and, and stuff like that, to where I am I'd say I wouldn't say perfectly happy because I think there's still that's not leaving enough room for that, you know, personal, you know, the my tunes and like my own sort of artistic voice as it is instrumentally right. and all that. But you know, I just you know, I have a fun time just sitting back and grooving and it's just kind of developed that way. And especially in a town like this where, you know, keyboards and bass are I mean, there's obviously a lot of musicians in this town, but those seem to be the two instruments that are a bit easier to find work than, say, drums right. and guitar. And you hit up on the keyword that I was going to say there with a capital W and a capital O and an R and a K, too. Because mm-hmm. if you want to work, if you want to earn a living, yes. a life in music, working is what... Getting paid work is going to be the biggest challenge mm-hmm. that you find. Because everybody can play music, and there's a lot of players who are probably better than you and I put together yep. who aren't working. Yeah. You know, for any number of reasons, mm-hmm. you know, but if you want to work, you have to diversify or it's, it behooves you to diversify. Yeah. So you're the smartest guy I know, man. Seriously. <laughs> you know, I mean, well, thank you. And then Brian, too, yeah. to, to that point. I'll you know, prove you wrong by the end of this interview. <laughs> learning, I hope not. <laughs> learning to play an instrument like pedal steel. Mm-hmm. Like I tell people all the time, you know, young musicians come to me, they want to learn guitar. I'm like, don't learn guitar, man. Or, or learn guitar, mm-hmm. you know, learn enough to be to function. But that's as much as anybody has to know anyway on guitar. Mm-hmm. Learn to play piano or organ. Learn yep. to play bass. Learn to play violin. Learn to play pedal steel guitar. You know, something esoteric, something not front and center, because mm-hmm. then you'll get paid. Absolutely. And the trick, too, is also, and this is one of the best pieces of advice that I've ever gotten from Brian, was basically, you know, if someone asks you if you can do something... Oh, yeah. Just say yes. Oh, yeah. Just always say yes. And that's what he did. And, you know, because I was asking him, because I hadn't done much singing before I moved here. Like, I always kind of like to do it. And that's still talking about instruments that are foreign right. to you. That's, you know, at this point, that's mine. I, you know, but I, but I love doing it. So I'm not going to stop. Um, but, you know, it's people ask you, okay, yeah, we need a piano player. But you, can you sing too? Because we need someone that can sing. I'm like, well, yes. 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 You know, and you just... Don't think about it. Just say yes, and that, you know, will lead you, you know, then it just starts spreading off from there. You get better at it, and people start thinking of you as that right. type of musician. Well, Lee, here's the big, big best advice for the, of the day that I'm going to give to anybody, at least I hope, Yeah, is that most people can't tell the difference if you're faking it in anything in life. For sure. Most people, the professionals mm-hmm. will know. But most people aren't professionals operating at that level. This right. goes for anything, anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I guess, but you know, as long as you're not an idiot, you know what I mean? Like, you have to have observed. Yeah. You know, you're around these things. You see singers. You've, you know, you've probably sung in the shower or driving the car yeah, around how town many or whatever. Vocal lessons or choir accompaniments have probably, you know, yeah, exactly. done in my life. <laughs> you know the language, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. If, and if you're studied at anything, you know, you can fake it. And then if you're, again, not an idiot, there's that catchphrase on there that I'm going to leave that in there. Yeah. Um, you can probably fake it well enough to get another gig. Mm-hmm. You know, the first time I mixed a band, 
you know, a big audio console. They used to be huge. You know, they're four feet wide, and there's yep. a million knobs and switches and buttons. The first time I was hanging out with a friend of mine's band, they were doing a show, and the sound guy didn't show up. I'm like, hey, Joe, can you do that? What was my answer? Yes. Yes, I can. Yes. <laughs> Had I ever stood behind a console and mixed a band in my entire life? No. Am I going to tell them that? Hell no. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They but don't I'd, need to know that. Yeah. I'd read enough about it. And, you know, it's so, you know, it's, and that's the thing. I think that's the other wisdom is that half of anything in life is having the courage just to jump in and do it. Yep. You know, we're going to fail unless you're maybe at the gun range. You're not going to die. Yeah. And if, if you have you good fail. instincts too, which you do, and, you know, great musicians, like, even if it's, you know, something you said yes to because, you know, they just needed somebody, you're like, you're not going to say no. I mean, you follow your ears and you figure right. it out. And it, what seems kind of like a daunting task at first, like once you kind of get going with it, it, you know, just, oh, well, this wasn't so hard, actually. Like, yeah. you know. And from there, it's putting yourself in the places where people are going to ask the questions. Mm-hmm. That's the next thing. And, you, you know, you've started off your formative years, San Jose, New York City. Mm-hmm. Actually, I want to talk a little bit about New York. Play a song for us first, though, because I want to get some more music in here. I think this is another one of your compositions. Yes, yes. What this is one's this? called uh, One Day at a Time. Okay. So let's, when we get back, I want to hear about New York. Sure. I mean, I, I live there a little bit, too, and it, I'm right. always curious to get people's impressions. So this is another Lee Pardini original composition, One Day at a Time. Some awesome piano, Lee Pardini, Independence Day.
a little minor key tango from Lee Pardini. He is mostly known for being a sideman, but man, you're a fully functional musician. Well, thank you for You're saying for that. Full service. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you Anything know? you want, I got it right here. What do you got? Well, we talked about it before. What's the the question? Is what can you do it? The answer is absolutely yeah. yes. Or yes, I can. Yeah, expletive. Yes. Can. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that works too. Yeah, you know, and that's just it. Take take the gig. Take the thing. Jump. You know, if yeah. there's one thing I learned in life, you know, is that. The, the faking thing we said before. Mm-hmm. I mean, that sounds like a negative word, but it's not really faking if you're just doing it because the only difference between doing it and not doing it is actually doing it. And getting over the fear too. That's one thing I've learned. Yeah. It's just, I mean, there's, don't, just don't be afraid of it. You know what I mean? And, and I was listening to you interviewing Brian um, and, you know, he was saying something about not much rattles him anymore. Yeah. You know, with all the stuff that can go wrong on a gig, all the, uncomfortable situations you might be in like you just got to get over that fear and just say yes to it and just go for it you know and most people don't notice people don't realize people are musicians are notoriously self-conscious oh yeah they're very aware of what they're doing and whether and then are people judging them and are people assessing them and maybe they are but it doesn't matter right do what you do Mm -hmm. you know what i mean i I feel like i feel like a a seer or something today an old guy with a beard on top of a mountain (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Should I? Life yes. coach. Yeah, life coach. <laughs> I don't know. For some reason, I'm feeling very, I don't know, dis- the dispensing, dispensation of wisdom is a big thing for me this particular day. Maybe it's the sun's coming out. I'm feeling more optimistic. Well, yeah, it's a beautiful day, and I'm probably... Your wisdom is telling you that I might need that sort of well, uh, you never know. sage advice. You I know? hope so, man. <laughs> so in, in light of that, we share something in common. We both live in New York for a while. Mm-hmm. Where were you? Where is the conservatory, and where did you, what neighborhood were you in when you lived there? So the conservatory is... Um, 122nd and Broadway. Okay, it's way up there. So it's uptown. Okay. And so when I first went out there, this was in uh, 2003. So for two years, I lived in the dorms, which were around the corner um, on Claremont Avenue, but right around the corner. So basically 122nd and Broadway. Okay. In between, you know, say in between Broadway and Riverside. So it's like upper, 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 upper east side. West side. West side. West side. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bad, so bad. it's, it's, you know, it's above Columbia. It's, it's, it's in a weird pocket. It's not quite Harlem. Right. They call it Morningside Heights. Is it past the top of the park there? Yes. Like parallel? Okay, so guys, it's even farther up. Yes. There. Okay. And then, so after that, I moved up to Washington Heights, which was, I was yeah, yeah, 158th yeah. Street yeah. and Riverside. What's the last street? Is it like 210th? Yeah, I think so. Twelve. Like the last stop on uh, the, the red line. Yeah. It's it's somewhere way up there. I looked at a place up there once upon a time. You know, uptown. It's I've had friends that you know since long since I moved uh, out of New York. Everyone was kind of going to Brooklyn. Yeah, and now a lot of my friends are going back uptown. Yeah, you know, it's it's pretty nice. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's definitely a more neighborhood. You're on the island. Yeah, and it's uh, it's such a culture. I mean, each neighborhood is different, but Washington Heights was. Uh, you know, primarily, primarily Dominican, Puerto Rican, right? You know, and it was a, you know, that was just an amazing experience yeah, for me. Totally and necessary too. Oh yeah, so I loved a, it up there. That leads me to my next question, which is, you know, you're a West Coast kid, mm-hmm. you know, San Jose Bay Area, which is, you know, very cool, very West Coast in its own mm-hmm. way. Uh, you show up in New York, you're going to school there. Like, how did New York get into your blood or into your soul? Because it changed, it changed me. Yeah, and it did me as well, but it took a, it took a while. I mean, that What's was a the, while. A month, well, a week, a year, two years. No, I mean, I'd say at least a year. Yeah, I'd say maybe even a year and a half okay. before I really started to, 
even begin to feel comfortable. I mean, because I also moved out there. I didn't know anybody out there. Yeah. And, you know, luckily I was going to school, so it was, and it's a small school, so the, you know, we made f- fast friends. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was intense. That was the culture shock of all culture shocks for yeah. me. Um, you know, so after about a year and a half, I started to, I think I got a fake ID too. I mean, so I could sort of go out <laughs> and really experience yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of different things of the city other than just you know, getting coffee and walking around. Right. You know, you can go to the jazz shows. You could sort of see what the well, nightlife the is thing. all about. People forget. I remember there was a specific show I wanted to go to before I was legally 21. Mm-hmm. And it was Trevor Rabin, the guitar player from, like the latter guitar player from Yes, from the 90125 Big Generator. Right. Yeah, and he did yeah. a solo record. And I really, yeah, I was, it's a strange guitar player. He does mostly, um, Great guitar player. Mm-hmm. He was mostly soundtracks now. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was playing a solo tour, which is like, well, okay, that's going to be awesome. It's going to be small venue. You know, I was like 20.8, you know, or maybe yeah. 20. I think I eventually got a fake ID like three months before I turned 21 or something. Right. It was right before that period, <laughs> but I couldn't go. Yeah. You know, and for musicians, that's something people forget. I feel like there should be some kind of card you can get as a musician to I let agree. you in to see shows. Yeah, and I just gave that piece of advice to a younger kid that's that's moving out here. And he's 19, and yeah. I was like, well, if you're moving to L.A. for music, I mean, get a get a fake ID. I mean, not to advocate breaking the law, but I mean, yeah. whatever. Like, just to be able to get into shows, yeah. not go out and be irresponsibly drunk underage, but like right. to see bands and like put yourself in the mix. Yeah. And after I did that, and it took me about two years in New York to even start gigging, you know, because school was intense, but like right. no one, no one knew me. It was whatever. And... So after about a year and a half, two years, it started to, uh, you know, start to work its work its way in right. to where like I was acclimating to that environment, which is very fast paced, very intense. Yeah, that and that city just oscillates. It's a never it's just laying in bed at night, like the whole town is humming. Yeah, it's. It's it just I mean it'll it'll break you yeah. I mean that's the downside of it is like after I finished school I was I was just exhausted yeah. you know and you know, I, I learned something about New York like because I fought it I came from sh- the Chicago area mm-hmm. you know and then lived in in Chicago proper so I knew city life mm-hmm. um, and Chicago is very urban oh um, definitely yeah. but then you know I, I went to uh, and I'd gone to Berkeley at, at, so I lived in Boston a little bit mm-hmm. and then uh, when I moved to New York. I fought it a little bit because it's so urban. I don't know that anywhere other than maybe Tokyo is that urban in the mm-hmm. world where you're you're in it all the time, yeah. 24 hours, which feels like 30, you know? Definitely. And hours, days feel longer there. And then, because everything's moving so quickly. And what I've learned, though, is if you can have the courage to open up your heart to New York, mm-hmm. in other words, the stream is moving. If you're fighting going upstream, you're going to die. Yep. It'll eat you up and spit you out. But if you learn to go with that energy mm-hmm. and with that current, open your heart to what frightens you yeah. about that city, it will pick you up and carry you along. Oh, it's so Emotionally, rewarding. artistically, professionally, be part of it. And mm-hmm. I guess maybe that goes for anything in life. But it's, It definitely it's a, it, it challenges you. I mean, as a city, like it, it pushes you to what you think is your limit. And then, and then you realize you can go beyond that and... It pushes you artistically because, like the the greatest musicians, artistically, yeah. I mean, like they live out there. They're you yeah. know here or there, but like you know, it's it'll it'll test you, you know. And if you could learn, yeah, to go with that, like you said, it's just 
it is so rewarding. And there are crazy gigs to play there. I mean, the, the, that's the especially if you're a jazz musician, mm-hmm. that's the best place to be. Oh, absolutely, yeah. New York. Everybody knows that. Mm-hmm. Um, they yeah. still have venues to, they, for jazz there. Yeah, you know, yeah. I can think of one or two in Chicago. I can't think of one in L.A. Well, there's a couple. I mean, and they vary in, you know, in what they book. The Blue Whale in Little yeah. Tokyo is definitely my yeah. personal favorite, okay. and arguably the best. I'd say the hippest. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, San Jose, I don't think has one. Yeah. You know, they've gone through phases of having one or two, but they always close down. They change right. ownerships. It turns into a whatever kind of posh bar. Well, it's funny because I brought this up. I looked this up and I knew you were going to be on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a report that just came out via Nielsen's 2014 year end report. Uh, just right out of there. Jazz is continuing to fall out of favor with American listeners and is tied with classical music as the least consumed music in the U.S. after children's music. Oh, oh man. How far jazz is falling. I know. What kind of, what is this? What, what's, you know? Well, I, you know, it, I'm sure there are a lot of things that, that play into it. Um, I'd say the thing that frustrates me the most about that is I think a lot of jazz musicians aren't, they're just not helping themselves or helping the music to to be in to be more popular, and you know that's not to say smooth jazz like you know, but it, you know ever since bebop it became it's it's become so intellectual and yeah cerebral and de- cerebral exactly and it, it definitely I think more often than not it really expects a lot of the listener you yeah. know and it's just not something that people are interested in at least yeah. uh buying it you know yeah like, well, i mean nobody buys any and that's part of the problem is that mm-hmm. nobody buys music no one ever bought jazz really you know <laughs> yeah, yeah really technically if we're gonna get down well, it's such to a it, live but, art too you know yeah it's a live art form i mean just you know more from that article right like in i mean again this is not i like jazz this is not to bash on yeah, jazz yeah. it actually it's a crime but you know in 2011 11 million jazz albums which were cd cassette and vinyl and digital were sold according to business week right mm-hmm. this is directly from this article from the nielsen's report okay um that represents 2.8% of all music sold that whole year okay? this was 2011 2011 i'm looking at here okay of just a year later that that so it was 2.8% then it fell to 2.2 rose to 2.3 in 2013 and fell to just 2% in 2014 so if the raw numbers mm-hmm. In 2%, that's 5.2 million albums, which sounds like a lot, but that's all jazz artists total. Whereas Taylor Swift, her album 1989, sold 3.7 million copies in the last two months of 2014 alone. (laughs) But that's that's indicative of the entire industry. Yeah. A handful of people are selling most of the records, and that's Mm -hmm. the way it's always been. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's just how can you compete, you know, when it's... Like, you know, not to, I don't know if it's dangerous. It's, you know, formulaic. Right. Certain pop music is formulaic to sell records to right. to young, vulnerable ears, you know? and Well, ears with money. Exactly. That's and you know, it's a business. People forget that. And it's almost like saying that it's almost a good thing, you know? Not that jazz is falling out of favor in terms of sales and whatnot, but like, I guess it still allows it just to, be what it needs or wants to be right. as a music. And, you know, if there's no expectations of it to sell a bunch of records and be popular, then that definitely allows for a lot of freedom where it's just, 
you know, you could really make an artistic statement for that small audience instead right. of having to sacrifice a lot for a larger audience, I guess. But Right. I mean, in a funny way, uh, like her or not, maybe the best thing to happen to modern jazz is Nora Jones. Because mm-hmm. she was on Blue Note, and she's arguably not straight jazz. She's not traditional jazz, but she can play. And mm-hmm. I remember reading an article with her. You know, she was a New York musician. Oh yeah, and like Adam Levy was her guitar player. They were a duo when they started before they made the million-selling yeah, yeah. record. Yep. And they would get. And this is a funny New York thing too. They would get gigs at like a car dealership on a Sunday, <laughs> where she'd play a keyboard and he'd play guitar, and they'd play for like three hours while people were shopping yeah, for yeah. their Lexuses. Car Lex- dealership Lexi. had no idea who yeah. was, yeah. And then, but nobody knew who she was. She yeah, was another yeah. musician, and then somehow she got the ear of Blue Note, mm-hmm. who signed her, which is a jazz label, and mm-hmm. then, I mean, probably sold more than all jazz records had sold in several years put together yeah, for that won, record. I don't know what, seven Grammys that year yeah. or something and crazy Grammys like that. and, you know, Fallen from the Sky mm-hmm. and like her or not, I mean, I think she's good, actually. I like her. I'm a fan and I do, I do agree with you in the sense that, you know, anybody who can, who can be a hybrid yeah, that, that at least draws some attention to the label or right. to the, to the genre in, in general. Right. Um, you know, the thing about her is I don't, think she's ever claimed to be anything but who she is right. in terms of like putting on the face of being like a serious jazz musician. I don't yeah, think she ever yeah. did that. And then she kind of turned a page and went and and kind of tapped into her more kind of Americana roots right. and was just always who she was. But it did definitely bring a good amount of attention to, uh, what was that, like 2002 or something? 2003? Yeah. And I, th- I thought it's so funny. I have the whole theory. I think that I think America needed Nora Jones after September 11th. Mm. I, I think we as a nation needed someone soothing. Mm-hmm. I think we needed someone a little safe, perhaps, and someone you know to sing quietly to us. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I guess some of us needed punk rock through that, and that's fine. We'll always need punk rock for its own reasons too. Right, right. But I think we needed that a little bit. Yeah. Um, and the cool thing about Nora Jones, like her or not, is she was always classy enough to go when people liked her. She'd go, "Hey, hey, this is I'm I'm playing a Towns Van Zant song. I'm playing a Louis Armstrong song. I'm playing." She would point to you know right away. Yeah. To your point, she would always say, "These are the people. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm glad you bought my album, but go buy." The Towns record, right? Go buy the Tom Waits record. Go buy these other people's records. So, totally. anyway, we're way off on a tangent now, but, <laughs> yeah, but it's yeah, cool, so, man. It's all tied together. Yeah, yeah, of it's course. All music. So, what I want to do, you know, you're we keep touching on the sideman thing, which mm-hmm. is kind of our light motif for this whole interview. Um, I want to just do some little quick hits with some stuff that you've played on uh, because you've done a lot in, in a short amount of time here mm-hmm. in LA. Uh, this first one is um, "Be Willing," which is an unreleased track. That's the, that's the artist. Yes, it's an unreleased track. And on this, you play bass and keys. Let's cue this up a little bit. And we'll talk about it. Okay, so this is uh, "Be Willing" with the track "Woke Up on Pills." Independence Day.
So tell me, tell me what what gets you off about this music as opposed to the other music that you play? Like you're playing on this, you're playing what exactly? What uh, bass, piano, and Hammond. I think. Okay. That's that's it on this track. Um, well, I what I what I like, especially about this track, because this is a whole unreleased album that um, that B is or Brendan, um, but you know we call him B or Brendan, but you know he's gonna put out at some point. But it's it's you know, and hopefully he does sooner than later. If he's listening, he should do it soon. But I li- I like this track particularly because it's got a bit of a Waitsian approach, okay. right. uh, at least to me, uh, in the piano part. We did the rhythm stuff, and you know the song's got a—it's got a groove to it. It's got a bit of a you know, kind of a country thing, but the piano just has this recklessness to it. Yeah. That I that I really every time I listen to it, I just love. It's just a pretty no holds barred. There's nothing nothing pretty about it. It's a lot of bashing, and, and you kind of hear there's just cluster just hitting yeah, it yeah. with my hands, and it's just really aggressive and. You don't get to do that a whole lot, right? You know, especially being a sideman. Like, you got to play to the song, and like Brendan just had this song that it worked perfectly for this yeah. real kind of evil quality to it, yeah, and and a bit circusy, Ominous. yeah. And it's just it's you know that's what I kind of dig about this yeah. track is that you just really it, it's do it's, something different, yeah. And it's it's you know I wish I could do that more often because it's necessary to get that sort of stuff out, yeah. which is. You know what happens in jazz for me is like you end up working that sort of thing out too, right. as as well as a lot of other things. But you know, under a singer, it it can be rare, and like just to be able to get that, yeah, get that aggression out. I played with a drummer uh, sometime last year. Good guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he just came in for the day because we wanted to kind of blow the cobwebs out of our amps. I hadn't played with a band in a while. We yeah. just rented a rehearsal space, took some friends in, went and blasted through some songs. And he was playing just fine, but then I, I kept trying to find the word to get him to do what I wanted him mm-hmm. to do, or, or you know, to, to way I wanted him to play a little more. And I finally, about a third of the way through the rehearsal or the the, the jam, I was like, "Hey, hey, uh, play with more abandon." Was the the specific phrase? And once he did that, it was like it like opened the turn the key or open the door, light switch yeah, came yeah. on. It was fine. It's like you know, it doesn't abandon doesn't mean suck. It just means jump in a little more, take more risks. Right, you know? risk is key. Yeah. I mean, without risk, I mean, you can't play it safe all the time, you know? Right. It's like, you'll just get, this just seems boring, you know? Right. I mean, it's like, you're not pushing yourself if you're not taking risks. And like, and that's that fearlessness that you have to have too, because you're going to make mistakes. I mean, not everything is going to sound good. Yeah. But, you know, you got to go for it. I mean, yeah, totally. All right. So how about, let's do another one of those. So this is Amy Blaschke, another Los Angeles-based artist. Yes. Uh, this is another unreleased track. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Shiverwary. Yes. Right? And then what, so what do you, let's, let's cue this one up. We'll come back. We'll do the same thing we did last time. Let's listen a little bit. So this is a different track, different artist, wholly mm-hmm. different experience, yes. right? And then, so tell me how you would approach, you know, like compare and contrast, like working with B 
versus working with Amy? Like you approach this differently. Like what's the working environment like? Right. So the two the two recording situations were slightly different, just fundamentally. You know, with with B, we went into the studio with you know maybe a little bit more time to experiment and and I knew that I was also going to be playing keys with him on the record and like we just had some time to kind of get a little reckless without any sort of consequence we could just go back right and and you know just redo it if we had to and stuff like that you know with Amy uh, and this this was produced by Brian Whelan and so hey Brian yeah hey Brian <laughs> and so it was me and Brian and Mitch Marine was playing drums. Hey, Mitch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Old Take friends. Like a roll call. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, and it was just the four of us in there, and you know, we 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 did have a time to sort of figure it out. But it was like when the three of us get together, whether it's doing Brian's thing or Amy's thing or whoever else. Like, I love the efficiency that that trio kind of rhythm section operates under, which is just like. Okay, she'll she'll play us the song. She either had a demo or just played it for us in the studio. Kind of make notes, so you can just get a sense of the form and the changes, and then do a take, see what works or doesn't work. And on this one, I'm just playing bass. And you know, after a take or two, I had kind of settled on a little bass line for the uh, kind of interludes and the choruses and stuff. But basically, you f find the groove. Everyone finds that part. You don't overthink it. And if it feels good, great. Do it. That's it. You know, and, and you have to, and I love that because it, you have to stick to your guns. Like you make a decision and that's, you know, yeah. that's, that's going to be what it's, it is. You can't overthink it. It's a different musical muscle. It's mm -hmm. almost like the Nashville way, which is the concise way. Mm -hmm. you just go in, boom, 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 do it, done. Yeah. The reason you're there is because you're a good musician, the producer and or artist trust you and what you're going to do. Yeah. You go in, trust your instincts, do it, get in and get out. And that's and that's that's so difficult. Each one is difficult in their own way because if you have the time to tinker with stuff and go back and yeah. forth and and decide you can inevitably find the perfect thing and and have something that you never would have been able to come up with if you have so much time to work it out. But you can it can be a trap. I mean, right. it can be a, just that rabbit hole whereas it's it's such a good skill I think to develop where you have one take, right? Or or two. I mean, essentially, you'll have more than one take. But if you go in the mindset like this first take, make a decision because you want to you want to have your voice do a little something on there, not just like just play it too safe. You do want to take some risk, but taking risk in a one take sort of environment, yeah. you know, and and learning to be okay with that if it's right. not perfect. Or just learning to make decisions real quick that that are good decisions, you know. It's yeah. all subjective, but you know, it's uh, so that's how those two two sessions were. And, and Amy, yeah. I mean, it, it it all starts with the song, right? Really, too. And if like she's such a great songwriter, and so is Brendan, but like that makes it easy. Yeah. If you don't, if the song is good, you don't have to do much. I mean, right. you just gotta make sure you're holding it down. Because that rabbit hole is deep. Oh, yeah. Once you get into that rabbit hole, man, because we live in a world, especially with recording technology being digital like it is, nonlinear, like, there are too many options now. Oh, yeah. You know, before it was like, okay, do you want chocolate or vanilla? Mm -hmm. You know, and they're both really good chocolate and really vanilla. Now it's like you have every conceivable combination of every topping and everything. It's too yeah, much. Yeah. It's craziness. And from, here's more wisdom. The, the hallmark of a seasoned musician is knowing what not to play. 
Oh, yeah. So, it's so much more about what you don't play than what, you know. Yeah. Yeah, totally. All right, so let's bring it back to you from here. You know, this was obviously you playing in those tracks, and they're great tracks, and I'm mm-hmm. glad we got through those things. But um, let's just talk. we got to keep this brief. We're running short on time. We're already going going over, but we've got... <laughs> I love talking to you, man. It's fun. Yeah, you too, man. Um, I'm just excited that someone is interested... To hear me speak, or oh, I guess man, it's a story that needs to <laughs> yeah, be told. Yeah. This is this is an important because I do thing. I'll do radio promo with with other artists, yeah. you know, and I'm I'll, I'm out of the way. I'm quiet. Yeah. It's just nice that someone cares, Joe. Oh man, of course we care. <laughs> you want a hug? I'll give you a hug. Yeah. Hugs are the greatest thing, man. So okay, so real quick here, because like I said, we're running out of time. Mm-hmm. I, we got two more things to get to. One of them is really really short. It's just a little thing that you've thrown together for mm-hmm. us. It's an Art Blakey kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk really quickly about your like your piano influences. Sure. You know, people grow up playing piano like they're influenced by like Elton John or mm-hmm. someone really obvious like pianist, you know, piano player. Uh, maybe even Nora Jones, who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, but for you, like, who was it that got you into it? And then once you were into it, who did you get into that like opened the door? Right. So I, you know, I, I'd, I'd say the first two people that I got into, maybe even before I actually started playing, was Billy Joel and Bruce Hornsby. Okay. You know, and I will defend him. I mean, both He's of a them. Good player, man. Oh, they're just great musicians. And Bruce Hornsby had his own special little thing going on. And and that's kind of those were the first two influences for me. Um, so I it's it's definitely a non-linear discovery of piano players for me because then once I was getting into jazz, it was, you know Herbie Hancock is definitely my one of my favorites. Bill Evans was the guy that got me into jazz. Hearing him play just so just so beautiful. Um, and then in recent years, you know Jerry Lee. Okay. Can't deny Jerry Lee. And to be honest, I think my favorite out of all the kind of rock and rollers is Johnny Johnson. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, Nicky Hopkins? Yeah, definitely. Uh, and of course, Ben Mont. We were talking about oh, Ben Mont earlier. Ben all Mont, hail to Ben Mont. He has just created a vocabulary where it's like you were saying, you know, and I've been told this too, where it's just like, just, you know, do the Ben Mont thing. Yeah. And, and the fact that I know exactly what that is, I mean, yeah. the dude is a legend. You know why? This is my opinion, mm-hmm. but I'll go on record with this. The man has never done the wrong thing. His part... Never. He is... Never. Everything, yeah. Everything's the right thing, always. Mm-hmm. Whether it's Wurlitzer or that funny little synth thing from You Got Lucky <laughs> yeah, or yeah. Piano or, or he's a brilliant on Hammond. It's always the right thing. It is. For the style, for the song, for the day, for mm-hmm. the age, for the year, for the relative humidity, the barometric pressure, yep. the gravity. Yeah, so he's had uh, he's he had an extremely big influence on me in, in how I play in in rock and roll bands and and behind singers. And, and real quick, it just occurred to me for those people who don't know who the hell we're talking about. This is Ben Mont Tench, who is Tom Petty's keyboard mm-hmm. player, who's been with him since day one. Yes. Yes. Okay, go on. I'm sorry. Yeah, and you know, so he's had a huge influence on me just just the way he can just the perfect parts. And it's like it's like knowing what not to play. Yeah. Like he he'll pad he'll on the Hammond and then all of a sudden it comes to a thing and it's not like he's taking a shredding solo. It's not like you know any sort of like 70s rock where yeah. the organ player just goes nuts, you know. It's just it's melodic and it's yeah. and it's singable. And that I mean that whole band place like that but that's you know and that's what i've tried to do um and a lot of the stuff that i've done with mia and and brian and and anybody else is like you know i have a jazz outlet to where i can just get all that stuff out and like not have to worry about being it it being memorable right 
or singable. Like it just be whatever I want it to be. It's my own yeah. thing. But when it comes to like recorded stuff, I, like I want people to remember to be able to sing it. Like yeah. I want it to be something they can latch on to. Yeah. You know, and Benmont's just perfect for that. Like yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's do this little Blakey thing real quick. Sure. I want to wrap it up after this. We got one more song after this. Let's lay this down for us. All right, this is uh, Lee Pardini, Monin, Art Blakey. Mm hmm. man very very cool short and sweet i love it yeah yeah totally i love that kind of thing yeah. and this leads me to my basically like the last topic i want to get to and we got to do this short too because we're again i could talk to you all day we, should, yeah. we just go to the bar from here just finish yeah, off our conversation yeah, totally, from yeah. here get a picture <laughs> um the one of my favorite things about you in talking to you watching you play listening to you play with the various artists both on record and seeing you live is that a lot of or i shouldn't say a lot some jazz musicians I've encountered in my life, and maybe maybe enough to qualify as a lot, they're extremely pretentious about the fact that they're jazz musicians. Mm -hmm. And they shun and look down upon other styles of music. And maybe it's just a paying gig. And if they do them at all. Mm -hmm. Or maybe, more than likely, they won't do them at all. Right? right? And we get it. The jazz musicians, yes, okay, fine. You're the best player. You can do it all in real time. You can transpose keys at the drop of a hat. You can do play forwards and backwards, and you can sight read and impro improvise and all right. that kind of stuff. That's effing great. But I'm tired of the attitude, and what I like about you is that I don't see any of that. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't even imagine having that attitude. You know, and it, I think it's a lot... Uh, it's, it's due a lot in part to... I mean, I got into jazz later. You know, the first stuff that I listened to, you know, we're talking about the Beatles and, and all these other things. So I learned to love, you know, songwriters and, and rock music and, and much, you know, simpler only in terms of like harmonic theory and stuff. But, right. you know, it's definitely not simple in its true depth of, of it right. all. But like, you know, so I got into jazz later and, and trust me, I went to school with plenty of, and even still in LA, like, you know, it is... It's a bit of a stereotype because people still act that way. Right. Um, you know, luckily, no one that I really play with, um, just because it's kind of a bummer, you know, if you have yeah. to be around that. But I just, I, I could never get into that. I mean, I just have so much fun with it all. It's like, you know, I have fun playing bass in, a, in an R&B band or something because I like that danceable groove. It's, it's not beneath me to do that because I can imagine different formations of triads over these chords and stuff you know what i mean yeah uh and it's 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 like it's a it's its own special challenge to i think it's just ignorance i think that attitude generally comes down to ignorance because each you gotta 
you can there's so much depth just in in all sorts of music that you can't it's just you can't dismiss it yeah you know like jazz is so intellectual and you know playing breakneck tempos over lots of changes but like it's it's also just as difficult to yeah to play that bass line and make it sing you know and and make it feel good or let's, the lyrics and, right. and all that sort of well, thing. Well, let's too, bring but. it back. Let's, let's kind of close with this because I think this kind of ties it all together in mm-hmm. terms of like a specific playing thing. We all know we were talking about Men Montench just a second ago mm-hmm. from Tom Petty's band. We all know who Rick Rubin is, million selling producer, genius savant producer guy. Totally. Right? They were recording those sessions with Johnny Cash, and it was a piano note, overdub piano note that they were going to do, that Benmont was going to play one note, mm-hmm. right? And they went to do it, and Benmont, who we already know is an exemplary player, plays the one note. And Ruben gets back on the talk back and he's like, uh, uh, Ben, play a little less. And Ben Mont's thinking in his head, okay, all right, it's one note. I'll, I'll play less. I'll play quieter. They roll the tape back. He plays it again. And Rick gets back on the talk back. Uh, no, uh, Ben, do a little less. Play a little less. <laughs> and now Ben Mont's thinking, okay, all right, I'll, I'll play a little less. So they roll the tape forward. He plays it, plays it again. And the tape stops. And now I think Ruben goes into the studio, or like from the control room, and Ben Benbon's getting angry now. He's a world class player, yeah, top tier millionaire, yeah. excellent player. And Rick's like, "I don't want you to play quieter, and I don't even. I want you know this is Rick Ruben's like Zen way of going about it. Play less, find a way, play less, and then Benmont, advanced player, PhD, three as far as I'm concerned, he has three musical PhDs. Yeah, Benmont, he's like, okay, all right." He got it. When it came around again, somehow he found a way not to play quieter. He played less emotion, less whatever it was that made less less. Yeah. And he did it. And like that's the thing. It's the space between the notes. Yeah. It's oh, the heavy, holes yeah. that you leave and knowing when not to play. Anyway, I, I love these topics, man. Yeah. This is good. So, Lee, you know, uh, we've got one more song. We're going to bring um, bring Mia back for this song. Mm-hmm. It's another thing you're going to do live here. Uh, it's been great having you. And oh, what a pleasure to be here, Joe. All right, man. So this is Lee Pardini accompanying Mia Dyson once again on Independence Day. This song's called Tell Me. Fire on a mountainside gets brighter all the time And it's got you hooked all through the night So much to do, you think of little might to do it. And the more you hold on to the time, you lose it. Tell me the things you never speak of. Tell me the things you never speak of. Oh, you have it here now, don't be 
things you'll never speak of Man, you're such a very good player. I mean, Thank kudos, you. kudos to you, man, for all those hours you've spent in woodsheds uh, all yeah. across this great land of ours, man. It shows. Yeah, no social life, uh, <laughs> lack of sleep, and you lost your ponytail to boot, man. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> you're like Samson, uh, I had there. to. <laughs> I know. So, so, man, I can't thank the both of you enough. It's been so great to get to know the both of you a little better, to have you in our studio today, and I hope it was very informative and entertaining for the listeners as well. Uh, Lee, Mia, you guys, you know, keep at what you're doing. Oh, thanks. Thanks so much for having us. It's too. Yeah, fantastic. thanks and, for having us. And, you know, you can visit Mia at her website, Mia Dyson, and that's M-I-A. Uh, I love that M-I-A, missing in action. M-I-A-D-Y-S-O-N dot com. You can follow her on Twitter at Mia Dyson Music. Uh, and Lee, you know, you are like, we've talked about this before, but you've got like the Lee Pardini bat signal because mm-hmm. you don't have website stuff. But people know where to find you. If, you know, you're getting work. And, yeah, yeah, Totally. You know, okay. word word of mouth. You know, as far as me getting work, yeah, recommendations, word of mouth. I haven't had to rely on yeah. websites and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I am a little bit behind the times, I guess, these days. Well, just put up the shorn ponytail bat signal, and Lee will see it. And well, come play it's kind of session. yeah. If you need me, you'll know where to find me. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's like the Dumble amplifier. We'll find you if you deserve one. Yeah, totally. Uh, anyway, so thank you to Lee Pardini and Mia Dyson, also the Independence Day staff, Valentina Rivera, Dale Tanksley, Wayne Tipinski, and. Sally Shackleton. The unshakable Tony Tone Loke Piscotti manages the Independence Day website. Independence Day's theme music was composed by the Great Great Lakes Myth Society for Independence Day. As always, I am Joe Armstrong. If you do one thing today, please be good to one another.